Take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. Before I pray, I want to uh, make a few comments on some things. I've, been, I've received a few phone calls, many emails, texts about what's going on in the Middle East. I think it's because of the internet. Everyone's was asking this question about, once again, prophecy, and what does it mean, and all that kind of thing. So I'm sure what I'm going to say won't make everybody happy. Um, and some of you go, oh, okay, and others like, but I want more information. You can always call me or text me or, or email me later. But let me just say these things. Number one, I am, there's, you know, when it comes to prophecy, Christianity is divided into basic two groups, right? Basically two groups. One group, there's a few major differences. The ma one of the major differences, I'm in the group that believes there's going to be a rapture of believers before the tribulation, that there's a, a real tribulation that will last seven years, and there's going to be a literal reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. That's, that's the camp I'm in. And that's where a lot of people are, in a sense. Uh, a lot of people aren't really sure where they're at, but it raises a lot of questions. So, number one, when it comes to prophecy, what prophecies must come to fruition before the rapture? None. Just so you know. All right, none. So it, could, it literally could happen tomorrow. It could happen in five years. So all these things happen in the Middle East. When it comes to the rapture question, no bearing. Number two, people say, well, what about Ezekiel 38 and 39? That, those chapters talk about this big invasion of Israel. Well, we don't know yet. Because when it comes to Bible prophecy, which is always easy to tell what Bible prophecy has been fulfilled after it's been fulfilled, it has to fulfill every detail of the prophecy. It just can't be close. And so there's just not, you know, when it, if, if, we were, if the skirmish was to end now, this would not be Ezekiel 38 and 39. So there's, there's nothing to do. Don't worry about it. Um, I mean, it's interesting someone's car uh, but anyway um, some want to know well what about Psalm 38 and if you're not familiar with that it talks about it gives a list of a lot of individuals or countries that are enemies of Israel and they hate they hate Israel uh, it doesn't have anything to do with prophecy it just kind of states where the hatred comes from uh, and the hatred for Israel is rooted in many ways going back thousands of years um, God said that they would hate Israel in the same way that uh, Jesus Christ said that many people would hate us because we're Christians. They hated him first, they hate us. Um, when it comes to this, a lot of people ask questions like, do you support Israel or do you support Palestine? Just so you know, that's a loaded question. All right? you, don't want to, you don't want to get into that kind of discussion through text or Facebook because you can't give a proper answer in three sentences. Um, I personally support Israel, but that doesn't mean I think Israel is innocent in everything she's done over the past 30 years. But there are people who will assume that's what you mean by that. And so it, there's going to be trouble. Uh, so if, you, if you're going to have a long conversation, great. But if it's going to be through social media, proceed at your own risk uh, when it comes to that. If you want to get into all that, it's okay. I'm not telling you you can't, but you just need to be aware of that. So... The question is, I think the most important question is, is how do we pray? What, what does all this mean? How do we pray? And I think it's, we can make it very simple. Pray 
that the gospel of Christ will be advanced among the Jews and among the Palestinians. There are many, when I say many, I don't know what that percentage is, but there are many Palestinians who are believers and they don't hate Israel. There are many Jews that are believers and they don't hate Palestinians. Man's problem is he is separated from God and the gospel is the answer. The answer is Christ. So if you want to get into all the politics, you have a right to do that. Uh, But when it comes to prophecy, this is, in a sense, more of the same. Uh, I don't think there's any special significance yet. There may be, but that's, that's to be determined in the future. So there's no reason to panic. You don't need to go out and buy extra toilet paper. Uh, you don't have to do any of those kind of things. Uh, just pray. And if people want to talk about this, use that as an opportunity to try to get around to what is the real cause of all of this. And it does. It comes back to that Jewish man named Jesus, who is the Messiah. Uh, And so hopefully, for those of you who might be panicking, you can just calm down. Um, Through the years, you know, there's always individuals who they they take, they look at prophecy and they look at their newspaper, which is already going to be a problem. And they try to make all these predictions. But you hear a lot of might, maybe, well. Uh, There's been several predictions. People used to talk about when a red heifer is born, that's going to mean all these things. Well, if you believe all the reports, several red heifers have been born through the years. Nothing happened. Um, So just relax uh, in that sense. Just live your life. Go to work tomorrow. uh, Live the Christian life. Share the gospel. uh, Do good to others, and it's going to be okay. Um, And uh, if war erupts and we begin to feel it, well, then we respond as a Christian. There's nothing I can do about what's going on in the world. I can pray, I will pray, uh, and I'm going to continue to share Christ. And I guess you could say that the chips fall where they may uh, when it comes to the rest of the world. So hopefully that will help you some if you were kind of on the side of panicking. Um, If I didn't answer all your questions, which I'm sure I did not, and you want to discuss it more, just ask. You can email me, uh, and I will give you the best answer I can or point you to what I think you can read. Um, but uh, I think that's just the best stance to take. Let's pray, and uh, we will get into the book of Matthew again. Father, we thank you again for your grace, kindness, and love, and for the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the Word of God. And we ask, Lord, as we continue our study, that you will help us as we carefully make our way through the Word, seeking to understand what is being said, what is being communicated. We pray, Lord, that your Spirit would continue to to interact with the Word of God in our lives and transform us into the image of your Son, Christ. Give us understanding concerning Christ, concerning man, concerning man's condition, concerning our condition, concerning how we should respond to what uh, the Word of God is teaching us and how we should live. Father, we thank you again that you have preserved your Word for us, and we ask, Lord, that you would grant us more than just a superficial, emotional attachment to your Word, that, Father, we'll have a deep love and commitment to what the Word of God has to say. As always, we thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 23, it reads, And he went, which is Jesus, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, 
those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So last week, as we were finishing up the immediately preceding verses, we were talking about discipleship. We talked about Jesus calling these men. We talked about some of the disciples that Jesus called to follow him. We pointed out that, um, uh, that, is, that when it comes to discipleship, it's not just about educating or passing on knowledge about the Word of God. It is living out the Word of God. Uh, the idea is to, when we disciple others, is we want to influence them by not only what the words of the text says, but by our submission to the Word of God, showing them the way, helping them to learn from us how we submit to the Word of God. We want them, we want ourselves, to master a new way of living. And the life we live should be a, a, a living example of someone who is shaped by the Word of God. Um, there is also, and this is pictured in our baptism, a change of identity and a change of purpose. Christ will transform us, so we will want to embrace our new identity as those who follow Christ, those who identify with Christ and his teaching. In fact, we should prioritize faithfulness to Jesus over any other and every other relationship we have. It is that overarching paradigm that shapes how we live and how we view and how we do everything. In the world we live in, trying to find ways to diminish who Jesus was, his life, his popularity, or at least the idea that he was very well known throughout Israel is very common. You can jump on the internet or if you have one of those packages where there's about 85 channels on TV, you'll find documentaries and all kinds of things where the individuals are, are continually diminishing the presence of Jesus, um, the history of Jesus, the importance of Jesus, uh, that type of thing. Um, it's, just, it's just very common. They'll be passing references to Jesus, whether it's written or maybe a short audio vi or video clip, where there'll be critics of Jesus. They'll say things like, well, Jesus was just a local rabbi or merely a local rabbi, that he wasn't very well known, uh, that it was his followers that at some point after his death that turned him into a martyr, that it was after his death we began to either elevate him to being divine or talking about him being the Messiah, that he was a great teacher, but that after his death, we've exaggerated that in his ministry to create a new religious movement. That, that is what is being produced in our society. It's what's being produced and said in our universities and colleges and high schools. Uh, on, on just the local news, these things come out. And so there's this constant onslaught from the world uh, where this perspective of Christ is continually being, in a sense, thrown down our, our, our throats. So we want to keep that in our mind as we work, continue to work our way through Matthew and his presentation to us as to who Jesus was. And what he tells us here is, in this, these very short verses, Jesus, during this time, in this area, which is a pretty large, was, he was very well known. This is a major movement. This is a major event. And if someone was to think about it for just a few moments, it was the death of Jesus that split our calendar. That's how people measure time. They measure time. They don't want to admit that nowadays, but they want to measure time based on when Jesus was born. So that's pretty major. That's, just, that's not just some minor individual. He has a, a major impact 
throughout the world. And it's not something that was just invented by his followers at some time. When it comes to this area of Galilee that he is, uh, where that Matthew's talking about, where a great deal of Jesus' ministry took place. Remember, we, we talked about, you know, is that in a sense the superhighway that was running through Capernaum when Jesus kind of moved his headquarters there and, and what that would mean as far as how word would get out about Jesus in other regions and, and how well known he would have become at that time. Uh, Josephus talks about this area of Galilee where he says that when you count the cities and villages, there were 204 uh, in the area of Galilee. A man by the name of Dr. Merrill wrote a book called In Galilee in the Time of Christ. He argues that in Galilee, it contained a population of pretty close to 3 million people. Now, I, as I was reading through a lot of different books trying to get a picture of what Galilee was like during the time of Christ, there's kind of a wide range of opinions as to what the population was like. There are some who say, oh no, the, the entire population of Galilee was maybe 500,000 people. And of course, then there's this guy who says, no, it's, it's two, most likely three million people uh, that are living there. In 1940, there was a, uh, an individual who said that there were 200 small towns and villages, uh, and if they had a population together of two to 300,000, and there were four great cities, and if they had a population of between two and 300,000, then you get between four and 600,000. And that was the population of Galilee. But I found that it seemed to be more and more a minority of individuals who held that view, just when it comes to, to the sheer number of people that were there. It's just, you know, just looking for historical accuracy, which is, which is important to a degree. But when it comes to the history of this area and Judea, Alexander the Great was an individual who conquered Judea about 360 years before Jesus began his ministry. And the reason why that's important is because there was a huge impact in the area of Judea and Galilee from Greek civilization. It would be like individuals coming to America. We would talk about individuals becoming more secularized. The idea is that our culture, uh, because of the, the size of our culture, the strength of our culture, there's an impact on individuals even if they have closely held, relief, held beliefs. And so there, and that would be normal. We, we even talk about today, we'll use phrases where we talk about cultural Christians. That's individuals who talk about God. They may talk about going to church. They don't believe in the gospel. They may know elements of the gospel intellectually. They've not placed their trust and faith in Jesus. But if you ask them if they're a Christian, they'll say yes. I've even heard individuals. It started when I was a little boy. Um, well, not a little, little boy. But uh, when I was in middle school and high school, I accompanied my dad at times when he would go visit people. And I've heard him ask individuals, are you a Christian? They would say yes. My dad would say, how do you know you are? And they would say, I was born in America. My dad normally responded with, so if I sit in your garage, does that make me a car? Uh, and what he was trying to get across to them is just being born in America doesn't make you a Christian because a, a Christian is something very specific. All right? and so, but we need to recognize that. And so the reason why that's important is because when Jesus was living his life and ministering, you do have those who are very, had a very strict Jewish upbringing. Those individuals uh, would have all taken extremely seriously the Old Testament. Many of them would have had much of the, of the Old Testament actually memorized because that was what they were given in school from age 4 or 5 all the way up until age 10, 11, or 12. It was just memorizing uh, the Old Testament and coming to a real familiarity with what the Word of God said. Then you would have your Hellenized 
uh, Jews. And so that's just another, you know, Hellenized just means they were greatly influenced by the Greek culture. And so there was a, a big mixture of ideas, meaning of the way they lived life. They would have still had on to their Jewish identity, though the very religious Jews would not have considered them to be at least very good Jews. They would say, oh, yeah, they're, you know, they're, they're, they compromise. You know, I'm not even, you know, they, they would have a hard time with them. But, the, but you have a large population of individuals who are Hellenized or secularized uh, um, um, Hebrew people or Jewish people. They would still go to synagogue. They would still claim they believe in God. And they, and they, they probably did. They believe in the God of the Old Testament. Uh, but these individuals were not strictly adhering to all the laws and, and to the ways um, that those who were strict would adhere to what the Old Testament says. So there's a very large cross-section of people that Jesus is ministering to. And the reason why that's important is because it mentions this in the Old Testament. And some people have gotten this confused because some people think that Jesus came to the Jewish people, which he did, and then when they rejected him, then God determined, well, okay, I guess I'll save Gentiles. That's not how it worked. God said at the very beginning, he was the God of both the Jews and the Gentiles, that he was going to save people from every nation, tribe, tongue, uh, and ethnic group to himself. He's going to create this new people. He's going to bring them to himself. So it's always been about everyone in that sense. That there's no, God is not a, a respecter of persons. He doesn't favor one over the other just because he likes them more because of their ethnicity. The Jews, as it says in Romans, do have or did have greater privileges in other groups, but that also brought greater responsibility. And that also meant it brought a greater judgment, a stricter judgment. In fact, when you read through Romans, what becomes pretty clear is that when it came to judgment, when God is judging over sin, he's dealing with a Jewish person first. He holds them accountable for what they've done. They're, they're, God isn't like pretending that because they're his people, somehow he doesn't see their sin. That's not how that works. So we need to have a really good handle on all of that and recognize that even though we do believe, as Christians, we do believe in a Jewish Messiah, um, he is a Jewish Messiah, but that doesn't mean he's only come just to save the Jews. Uh, he's come to save all men, all kinds of men is the best way to look at that. So Alexander the Great conquered Judea about 360 years before the ministry of Jesus began. The Romans took over Judea in 63 BC. King Herod the Great was given power almost 25 years after that in 40 BC. So again, by the time Jesus arrived, we have this real cultural melting pot of individuals uh, that are living in that area. So when you look back at Matthew, it says in verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Decapolis refers to a union of 10 Greek cities. They all had a Jewish minority population. So they were primarily Gentile, uh, but, but they all had a Jewish population. And again, that's important. Uh, you will find in some books, they, they'll say that it was predominantly Jewish. That's not really necessarily true. But the idea is, is that when Jesus comes and he presents himself and he does his ministry, again, there's people from all walks of life that are being introduced to who Jesus is. And individuals are coming to faith in Christ. Basically, Jesus had a reputation as a teacher, as a miracle worker, and that spread significantly. Again, one of the reasons that Matthew delineates all of this is, again, to demonstrate that Jesus came to be the Savior of all people. That's not just for us to understand. Remember that when you read through the book of Acts, that was a problem as well. 
And so one of the problems of the church was, are, can Gentiles be saved? How are they saved? And if they're saved, what does that mean in their relationship to the Jewish people and the law of Moses? And so all that had to be worked through to help the Jews to understand that Gentiles are not only saved by grace in the same way they are, but that we are co-heirs with Christ. And there's not this division any longer between us in that sense, that we all come to Christ uh, in the same way, always by faith, and it's by faith in the gospel, and we are then children of God. Matthew indicates that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So I want to deal with two general statements in this passage this morning and helping us to kind of get a good perspective on the ministry of Jesus going forward. Here the Bible records that Jesus is doing just as many miracles without anyone exercising faith than with their faith. He's healing everyone, left and right. They're bringing people to him and he's healing them. He's healing all of them. But it wasn't always that case. And when you read various commentaries, I have seen where some people seem to become kind of confused when it comes to, in particular, Jesus healing individuals and what that means for us today. And, and so what people will rightly notice is that there are some individuals that Jesus heals and he never talks about faith. And there's other places where he won't heal until they exercise faith. And people have gone through a lot of, I guess you would say, mental gymnastics, trying to figure out what does it mean for us and how do we, I guess, how do you get God to heal you? Uh, that kind of thing. There's all kinds of things out there. But when you look at the life of Jesus chronologically, to me it kind of falls out really nice and neat to help us to see clearly what was going on. And, and you can divide the ministry of Jesus in, in, of his three and a half years of ministry in half. And there is, uh, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which is before a particular event takes place, Jesus never requires faith to heal. After a particular event, Jesus always requires faith to be healed. Something changed. What changed? Well, we'll get into it more later, but just so you know, that dividing point was when Israel, uh, as a nation, basically, and it started with the religious leadership, when they accused Jesus of doing miracles by, because he was demon-possessed. That was the whole story about him. When he heals uh, an individual who who's, has a, a, a demon, and Jesus casts out the demon, the individual is, uh, is, is um, mute, they can't speak, and Jesus very easily casts out the demon, and everyone there that's watching understood, because of their religious teachings, that that was called a messianic miracle, a miracle that only the Messiah could do. So if someone did that miracle, that points that that individual is the Messiah. And so by that time when Jesus performs that miracle, the Jewish leadership of Israel, they hated Jesus, they wanted him dead, and now they got a problem. Now he's done a messianic miracle. If we say he's not the Messiah, we've got to be able to explain how he just did that. And so when you read, there's two different accounts, two different times he does that miracle. And when he does that, um, the leadership says, oh, he does this by the power of Beelzebub. And of course, then Jesus pretty much destroys their argument by talking about, so a kingdom divided against itself, how does it stand? Why would Satan cast out Satan? That, just, that doesn't make any sense. All right, that is the event. And when that event takes place, a lot of things change. 
What happens? Well, this is what takes place. Number one, concerning the purpose of his miracles, I believe uh, the first change concerned uh, this, which was, again, that his miracles were serving to be signs to Israel, to get Israel to make a decision concerning his messianic claims. That what he was doing, everything he was doing was to prove to them, because that's what the miracles are for. They were for signs. They were to prove to them uh, that his message and him as an individual was authenticated by God, that he was sent by God, that he had the ability to forgive sin. Uh, we'll get into this a little later in more detail, but just very quickly, uh, there's a time when a paralytic is brought to Jesus and he says, your sins are forgiven you. And then after that, he tells the, the man that he's healed, he should get up and walk. The order of that was very important because the Jewish leadership and many of the Jews would believe at that time that when he said, your sins are forgiven you, and of course you, you can read how they discuss among themselves, well, wait a minute. Who can forgive sin? Only God can do that. that. That's blasphemy to say that you have forgiven someone of their sins. Jesus wasn't saying, I've forgiven you for calling me names. He's not forgiving, he's not forgiving him because the man had offended Jesus. He is forgiving him of all of his sins. And so they're in an uproar. So when Jesus followed up by healing the individual, that, would have, that order would have meant something to the people because in their minds it would have been this. You don't commit blasphemy and then turn around and by the power of God heal the man who's crippled. God would not allow that. So when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you, he had all their attention. And then by following up with a miracle, that would have proven to the people he did have the power to forgive sin. That was the importance of that. So all these miracles that he did were signs, just like when the, the sign where he, again, cast out the individual who uh, was unable to speak or had the demon. It's not, it's not in the scripture as far as a messianic miracle, but in Jewish theology, they would have the discussions as to how will we know when the Messiah comes. And the answer was always, well, he'll do many miracles. And then some would say, well, many men will do miracles. How will we know which one is the Messiah? And in the discussions, they said, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll do three miracles. And those three miracles would be miracles that have never been done in Israel. And that was one of them. We'll get to the other ones later. Uh, but that was one of them. And so they had been taught from the time they were young that when a man does this miracle, this is unique. It's never been done in Israel. This is the Messiah. And that's why the crowd said, could this be the son of David? That's why they did that. They were asking, is this the Messiah? Because we're seeing it with our own eyes. So that was the purpose of his miracles, to point out that he was the Messiah. After this rejection of Jesus Christ, then his miracles take on a different uh, form or a different purpose, which I believe was to train the 12 disciples for the kind of work they would perform uh, because of his rejection for the nation. There were, and again, Jesus told the Jewish leadership there would be no more signs except for the signs of Jonah, or the sign of Jonah, which is the sign of the resurrection. When it came to the basis of his miracles, again, the second change uh, concerned the people for whom he performed miracles until this event, which is this rejection of Jesus, uh, of his messiahship based on him being demon-possessed. Um, whenever he performed miracles, he did so again for the benefit of the masses without requiring them to first have faith. But from that point on, he only performed miracles for the benefit of individuals in response to the needs of individuals, and he did demand that they first have faith. Until this event, whenever he healed a person, uh, until the event meaning the rejection of Christ on the basis of being demonized. 
when he told an individual um, to, uh, that he was healed, he would tell them to proclaim what great things God did for them. After this event, he would tell individuals, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone. So that's why the book of Luke is so important because you want to make sure that you have the life of Christ in chronological order. Matthew and Mark and John, they don't necessarily do it in chronological order, and so sometimes it can appear like, well, wait a minute, but he did that here, and then he did this. They all don't follow the chronology. That's why Luke states specifically in the beginning, he is setting it out to um, follow in chronological order. So if you ever get what's called a harmony of the Gospels, uh, they normally follow the book of Luke. And then what you, and as they go through the life of Jesus, you'll see, you know, like in one section be Matthew 4, and then over here it's, it's you know, Matthew 12, and then over here it's, oh, they went backwards. Now it's back to Matthew 6 because they're trying to follow their chronology, which is given in Luke. So that's important to keep in mind when you work your way through these. So when you divide the life of Christ up chronologically, you begin to see these things. And so you see the difference in how individuals are told to handle perhaps the healing or maybe being delivered uh, what Christ wants them to do. On the one hand, tell everyone what God has done for you. On the other hand, don't tell anyone what God has done. And then the, la the third thing is, um, his message changed, and that is until this event of his rejection, he and the disciples went all over the land of Israel proclaiming his Messiahship. Uh, from this point on, in other words, when that event takes place, he forbade his disciples to proclaim his Messiahship. So when Peter made his great confession in Matthew 16, 16, he, or, where Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, what did Jesus tell Peter? Tell no one. He told him, tell no one. Um... So then after that, so, that's, so that is what's important about the phrase, or the phrasing in Matthew where it says, he healed everyone who came to him. He did do that. And he did that up until a certain point in time. The second thing that it mentions is that Jesus went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So I think it's important to ask ourselves some questions because what was Jesus proclaiming? What is the gospel of the kingdom? Gospel is good news. What is that? Jesus hadn't died for their sins yet. Jesus wasn't preaching to them saying, oh, just so you know, in the future, I'm going to die for your sins. That's not the message that he was proclaiming. So what was he proclaiming? He hadn't, he hadn't died yet for the sins. Obviously, he hadn't been buried and risen again. So the content of the good news is not always the same when you work your way through Scripture. Uh, there's this principle we use when we study the Bible called progressive revelation where God progressively through time reveals more and more about himself. We know that there were individuals in the Old Testament who were believers in Jesus Christ, but there was no gospel as we think of the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That, there wasn't that to believe in, so what did they believe in? How were they saved? And we do rightly say, well, you know, but they, they have faith in God, and we talk about the coming of Christ, but they didn't know that. They didn't know that, oh, one day God's going to send the Messiah who's going to die. They didn't know that. In fact, when you read through the scriptures, it tells them that the prophets were looking into trying to understand what was, how all this was going to take place because they weren't getting it. And so what did, they, what did they trust in? Well, let's just take Abraham as an example. So a few points to help us to grasp then uh, what it was that Jesus was teaching these individuals. So we cannot ignore the fact that the Bible clearly tells us um, that Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith in God's promise. What did God promise him? That he would make him a mighty nation. 
There's other things in the covenant, but that was, that was part of it. So he was, not, he was not counted as being righteous because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that hadn't happened yet. Secondly, James states clearly in James chapter 2, where he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Now, James wasn't saying you work for your salvation, but that was evidence of his faith. He believed God, and his belief in God was evidenced by his obedience. And so he obeyed God, and we see his faith, and again, he was clearly um, uh, an individual who was a, we would consider him a believer in God. Thirdly, the word of faith that Abraham believed was the promise of the land, the seed, and a worldwide blessing. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. Fourthly, um, the specific promise that God made to Abraham was not that a Messiah would die for his sins, but that his wife would produce a son, though she was barren and beyond her age. And you see that in Genesis uh, 15 and Romans chapter 4. And so, as the scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So Abraham exercised faith in God. Faith is trusting in what God says. When you and I believe in Christ, we are trusting the gospel of Christ. What are we trusting in? God has preserved for us the good news concerning Christ in the word of God. We are trusting what God says and trusting what he says about Christ. And we trust what Christ did as given to us by God, that he lived, that he was born a virgin, lived a perfect life, that he died for our sin. We get that from the word of God. We trust what God says and that therefore the sacrifice of Christ was acceptable to God because he lived a perfect life. He wasn't dying for his own sin. He was sinless, that he was buried and rose again, as Paul says, according to the scriptures. So we are exercising faith in God. You can also say correctly that I am putting my faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. It's all related. It's not just I'm just trusting God just in a general way. It's a specific way. When Abraham said he believed God, Abraham didn't stand up and say, oh yeah, I believe God exists. No, he proved that he believed in God or trusted in God by his obedience to what God said. And it began with when God said, okay, you need to get up out of your land and move. I'm going to show you where I want you to live. He got up and moved. And so we see that being exercised. So men throughout time are always saved by God's grace through faith. In other words, no man has ever earned salvation. All men are sinners. That's what the Bible says. So salvation for any individual is always by God's grace. Number two, it's always appropriated by faith, by trusting what God has said, putting my trust in him. Number two, the content of the faith does change. And with it, the required response. So based on a principle I believe we see in Romans chapter 1, where Romans 1 clearly tells us that all men die what? Without excuse. Which, which is important because when we have to answer the question, what about the guy in China who's never heard the gospel? Because that stumps people. Well, if you've never heard the gospel, how can God send you to hell and God still be righteous? Well, according to Romans chapter 1, he doesn't have an excuse. But I know he's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the principle you see when you read through the entire uh, first chapter of Romans is, if man does not respond to a little bit of revelation, he's not going to respond to a lot of revelation. Now, I'm not making that up. That's what God says. God knows us perfectly. So, and it seems when I read Romans chapter 1, that if someone does respond positively to 
general revelation or a little bit, God takes it upon himself to make sure that individual hears the gospel. They're going to hear it. So the idea is, is that all men die without excuse, even though they've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, to me, that nicely fits in with there's this continuity, a consistency with God and the re- this religion that we believe in that, that comes from the scripture and God's dealing with men and that God's always dealt with us on the basis of faith. And God has this big plan out. And we are uh, obviously in a very uh, wonderful position because we've seen so much of it played out. We haven't seen all of it yet. We've seen a great deal of it. And the main, one of the main key components obviously is what? The atonement of Jesus Christ. And so that's the message that we're able to, to declare to others. So men are always saved by God's grace through faith. The content of faith does change and the required response. The man of faith always obeys. In fact, when you read through the New Testament, there's one or two times where it talks about believing in Christ is what? Obedience. It is a command to believe in Christ. When you and I believe in Christ, when we trust in, in the gospel, you are obeying God. Because what is it for those who don't believe? That's disobedience. They are disobeying what God has said, correct? God has given the gospel. They're disobeying. They're saying, no, whether they're saying it out loud or not, God is a liar or I'm rebelling against that or I don't, whatever it is, I don't like that. I reject that. That's disobedience. So we are, so we are obeying God when we believe in the gospel. That doesn't diminish this idea of a gift. Right? There's no contrast with those two things. Both those things are true. And then fourthly, the Bible tells of many men of faith, but what they knew and what they believed was different. So when you look at uh, Adam, when you look at Noah, uh, when you look at Abraham and all those great individuals, again, men of faith, but the content of their faith was very different. So then what was the gospel that, bre- that Jesus preached? What was the good news that Jesus preached? He preached, as it says, the coming of the kingdom in and through him. Both the gospel that Jesus preached and the gospel preached after the cross, good news, according to God's promises. The key distinction that the gospel of the kingdom depends on the gospel of the crucified king. So there's not a contradiction there, but the offering of the kingdom per se to Israel is all contingent upon what was going to happen, which was Jesus dying for sin. Because no man can enter the kingdom apart from his sin being dealt with. They didn't know how all that was going to happen, but Jesus said the kingdom is at hand. Believe what? The promises of God. And what's the promises of God? That the kingdom is coming. There is this kingdom. And you can be a part of this kingdom. And everything, when you read through the Old Testament, talks about man living in righteousness and taking his sin very seriously. Under the Old Testament, sacrificing those animals because we recognize that sin, I should die for my sins. So God is allowing this animal to, to be my substitute, at least temporarily, every year, I sacrifice this animal to cover my sin. Maybe one day my sin will be completely wiped out. They didn't know how that was going to happen. We have the perspective uh, of how it happened because we obviously are alive after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But they are to believe in the promises of God. So the key distinction, again, is that the gospel of the kingdom depends on the gospel of the crucified king which was a secret of the kingdom. It's a mystery that was going to be revealed after the fact. So again, it's only one gospel. The important factor is this. Though through the doctrine of the apostles, once for all, delivered to the saints, the church preaches one and only gospel. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. That gospel is the message of Christ and him crucified and risen on behalf of guilty sinners. It alone is sufficient, being the deliberately exclusive focal point of the church's proclamation. What about the gospel of the kingdom? It is the promise of the new heavens and new earth. You already know this. You and I are going to participate, and we are members of the new heaven and the new earth because of the finished work of Christ. That's the gospel of the kingdom. So we never diminish the gospel, but we don't want to make the atonement to be the only thing about Christianity. It's bigger than that. It is about the glory of God. Obviously, it's a major component, but it's not the only component of that. The final stage of the kingdom of heaven is, is when the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. The promised kingdom is the glory and the hope of the gospel now made full in the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you and I trust Christ, what are we looking forward to? Living for all of eternity with him and each other. That, that is a glorious message. We are able to face death. It's not merely because Jesus was crucified for our sin and rose again. Obviously, without that, we don't have anything else. But what does that mean? That means I'm going to rise from the dead. That means my mom, who died earlier this year, is going to rise from the dead. My grandparents are going to rise from the dead. We're going to be together for all of eternity because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So it's not just, oh yeah, I have the atonement and there's nothing else in life. It means something travels through time. So now, it's made, so now the hope of the gospel is made full in the revelation of Jesus Christ, his cross, and his resurrection. There is a sense in which these blessed realities have begun in the new birth. The kingdom itself is a glorious reality that is still future. The gospel of the king and him crucified and risen includes the hope of his kingdom. But the proclamation of the kingdom and its ways is not itself the gospel. You can only see the kingdom of God through the cross of Christ. A good kingdom cannot be justly given to bad people. The hope of a changed world given to unchanged people uh, is not what Jesus preached. The call to repentance was preparatory for the cross and all that would open. Remember that when John the baptizer was baptizing, they were uh, confessing their sins, getting right with God, and what that would mean then is that when John pointed to the Messiah, they would believe. Because what does sin do? It blinds you. It blinds you to the truth. What, what do we pray for when it comes to those who are unsaved? We ask that God would take the blinders off their eyes, off their hearts, so they see the truth of Christ. What is Christ? Christ is the anointed one. That's the Messiah. They would see the truth of Jesus. And so it's the same thing. The coming of the kingdom of God is only good news for those who are reconciled to God through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So for these reasons, we preach the word of the cross unashamedly for God's glory and man's joy. Remember that without God becoming man, man cannot become man. For he cannot become what he was created to be. Both man and the environment God made for him must be renewed. And that there's a promise it will be renewed. And it is renewed through the cross of Jesus Christ. So the bigger picture is this. We should then see the incarnation of Jesus not merely in terms of just the first advent but perhaps more so in terms of a second advent. Though the sacrifice for sin is paid at the cross, 
And our hope was sealed when Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended on high for us. The full results of the first coming are not realized until Jesus comes again. And you're familiar with that verse. It says that the whole earth is what? Groaning. Awaiting the day of our redemption. We have been redeemed, but we are awaiting our redemption. When this body is done away with and we have that new glorified body. Eternal life, resurrection, the last day, the age to come, the kingdom, the regeneration. These are all essentially linked to the risen and returning Christ, who is the covenant of God of the Old Testament. In fact, remember we partake of communion together. Uh, community is unique in this way, that what we are doing is we are, rep we, are, we are engaged in remembering what Jesus Christ did in the past for us. As we partake of communion, we're remembering that it has present-day results in my being forgiven of my sin. And we do so looking forward because Jesus said that he would partake in that again when he returns. And so the past, the present, and the future are all represented in when we do uh, communion together. And we're, so we're looking forward to this day, to this, to this kingdom that's coming, which is coming because the king is alive. He is going to be the one who brings all of this about. He is the one who's going to restore everything himself as the new covenant incarnate. Remember that Jesus Christ doesn't just bring about the new covenant. He is the new covenant. It's him. What began with creation, this project, if you want, depends upon the completion of the twofold work of Jesus Christ in both of his comings, not just in one. The Christ by whom and for whom the world was made is the Christ who is incarnated in the world and dies on a tree in his world to give salvation and is resurrected for the hope of the world and who will return to reign over the world that is rightfully his. You see all of reality and all of history is Christological. It is all about Christ. And this is whom we worship. That is the message that Christ preached while he was on earth. He was coming to save individuals by dying on the cross. But he preached the good news before that ever happened. And the good news is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you want to be a part of that kingdom? Do you want entrance? Then what did he say? Repent of your sins. And as individuals who had repented of their sins, then when Christ died and rose again, they were, I believe, the first ones who believed in Christ. All of a sudden, the lights came on. My sin is forgiven in him. The one who was preaching to us about the kingdom he was the one coming to give his life so I could enter that kingdom. How incredible is that? Unbelievable. What great news that God has for us. Let's pray. <coughs> Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for your goodness and your grace. We thank you, Father, for the work of Jesus Christ. And Father, we are so grateful that the work of Christ is not finished in one sense. We know, Lord, that our salvation is completely purchased and that we are completely saved in every way. We know, Father, that in time, all the promises of God will be fulfilled in Christ. And there will be a day that is coming when sin will be eradicated, there will be, where sickness and death will be eradicated. And we will then, at that time in the future, all who believe in Christ experience in full measure the resurrected life, living in the kingdom for all of eternity with our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, what a marvelous message. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to burden our hearts for those who don't know Christ. Because, Father, as we see a world that is just lost in turmoil, the message of hope is Christ. 
And that message includes with it a new world brought about by Christ. But the only way all of those things can happen is the issue of sin must be dealt with first. And right now it needs to be dealt with in the heart of man. We thank you, Lord, again for the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, we ask you to give us boldness to speak the truth to others. And Father, for those who may not know Christ, I would pray that, Lord, they would recognize that the new world that's coming, they can have no part in it because they are separated from you and that they must believe in Christ. And we pray that your spirit would convict them of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And they would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, again for your consistency to us. We thank you, Father, for preserving for us your revelation and giving us the good news concerning yourself. We thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.